you know, thinking back, some families cover these kinds of things well, and other times there's signs that people recognize. You know, looking back from a, you know, a church experience, do you think people in the church knew? And and if they knew, you know, what were they doing about it? And I guess that leads to thinking about. Do we have a culture in the church today in which people of faith recognize this kind of thing and what they should be doing about it? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work and renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host, and this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Carla Mike Wick, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a special shout out to our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Our guests for this week's CBF podcast conversation are Dr. Elaine Heath and Janine Heath. McLean. Janine is a licensed professional counselor, and Elaine is the co-founder and president of Neighbor Seminary and the former dean and professor of missions and pastoral theology at Duke Divinity School. Janine and Elaine, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you for having us. <laughs> Janine, you know, you are a licensed professional counselor. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about your, your practice and your approach. Yeah, well, my training was in family systems, and my experience as a, a therapist is Originally, I worked in crisis counseling, and and um, my training was a dual track where I could do both high school counseling and then a clinical track, and so I've done both. And I opened my very tiny private practice in 2007 when my youngest daughter went to college. I was a high school counselor at the time, and so for many years I did both, uh, working full time as a school counselor and then secondarily as a um, a private clinician. And I work in my practice with uh, adults and couples and sometimes I see minors. Um, Yeah, so, and then when I retired from school counseling, fortunately just prior to the, before the pandemic, um, and now I've expanded my practice a little bit. So I work half time. Elaine, uh, leaving Duke Divinity School and into retirement, you, you started a new project uh, and, and are running that neighborhood seminary or neighbor seminary. Tell us a little bit about it. Yes, I, I left Duke and uh, launched neighborhood seminary with some friends, um, got it up and going. It's a theological formation program for mostly for lay people. 
to help them be uh, loving neighbors, to help them really live into their neighborhood with missional ecclesiology and uh, to be a blessing in the world. So I did that and then I retired from there in May. Um, when I left Duke, I also started uh, neighbor, uh, sorry, Spring Forest with my husband and some friends. It's an intentional Christian community with a farm and a forest, and I serve as abbess to the community. So I'm actually appointed here now, even though I'm a retired clergy, I'm appointed here by the North Carolina Conference. And we're doing pioneering work in developing what a new monastic model looks like in the Wesleyan tradition. So, um... You know, it's it's not unusual for us to have co-authors on here. I would say, I certainly think this is the first time we've had sibling co-authors on here. Um, you know, it's a it's a fabulous book, uh, but certainly one that is is difficult, I imagine, for y'all to to write, uh, and certainly for readers. Um, but a, a wonderful book at that. Um, so the book is "Loving the Hell Out of Yourself." This is a memoir of your childhood and a journey of abuse, abandonment, neglect. You wrote, despite each of us having been in recovery from abuse for a very long time and generally being happy and at peace, reliving our stories together in this new way was hard work. Elaine, walk us through the journey of the process of writing about some of the most gut-wrenching years of your life. Well, Janine and I had talked about writing this book for a while and we finally decided, okay, now's the time. So we, this is in December, couple of years ago. So we um, went to the Outer Banks, rented an Airbnb, and had a writing retreat. <laughs> and uh, so we ate a lot of ice cream and, <laughs> and, and just kind of talked through, okay, how do we want to tell our story? And finally, we just said, look, let's each go in our own room, write a memory of something, come back, read it to each other, and we'll trust that that will get, the, that will get it started. So we did that. And when we came back to each other later in the day and we read our chapters, we just wept. It was so powerful. And it was as if, um, I don't know, just something opened up. And we found ourselves writing this book, uh, writing the memories, sending each other the chapters. Um, when you experience the kind of violence and neglect and um, predation and, and things like that that we experienced, it puts a lot of toxic shame into you. And so we've done a lot of healing of our, of our own shame. And our, you know, as, as you read the quote, you know, we've been in a peaceful, happy space for the most part, you know, for a long time. But we, in order to write this book, we had to go back into those memories, which are visceral, they're bodily. And, you know, from the point of view of us when we were children, what it felt like and sounded like what we heard and saw and everything. So, um, it was very cathartic to write the book. And I know for myself, um, I still had uh, some things I had been reluctant to talk about, but I found myself able to talk about them in writing the book. And so it was also freeing for me in a new, in a new level. That's how I experienced it. Hmm. Janine, what, what was the process of creating this memoir like for you? Well, it was, um, fortunately, uh, I think all of the, healing that we had done um it wasn't traumatic on the other hand there was a sense of on um kind of getting into a mental elevator and going down and describing and then being with the memories in a way 
that is required when you're telling the story. And then um, it's like, I'd have to go make dinner or go meet friends and, and re-enter the world after having kind of descended into it. And uh, so that, that was, at times I needed some space just to adjust and feel. Um, I am so grateful to say that I was also very grateful that um, I didn't experience a tremendous amount of shame. It was because I don't think I could have published it if I had, but there was a time when um, describing all of the trauma and all of the story that I, there was no way I could have put this out for public consumption. Mm -hmm. Obviously we want people to read the book, um, mm -hmm. but you know, in many regards, we, we kind of have to set the stage of what you experience in order to help people understand, you know, kind of where we're going with the conversation. But you know, so when you talk about abuse and abandonment, neglect, um, do you feel comfortable giving us a, a glimpse into what you mean by that, Janine? Yeah. Um, well, I am the youngest of five children and our parents were um, born in 1920. And so just contextually, they were born into poverty. Our mother was born in Harlan, Kentucky. Our grandfather was a coal miner. And um, so she, she, it, she grew, you know, she, the, both of them were born prior to the Great Depression. Our father was from Tennessee and Ohio, and both of them experienced a great a deal of poverty. And, um, and then our father was a, a soldier in World War II. And I think his traumas that he experienced in childhood, as well as his own genetic uh, disposition led him to become an alcoholic and he came home from the war very broken and and a violent man and by the time i came on the scene you know my oldest brother was 14 years older than me uh our he had lived a lot of his life with our grandmother our parents um, often had us live with neighbors or other people that would take us in and eventually for me um that meant at 14 i was told to find someplace else to live. And I lived with several families and ultimately was adopted by a family who was um, not good to me as well, even though he was a, an elder in the Baptist church. Um, and so th that's, as far as the violence, I mean, it was life-threatening and it was physical and then with the people that adopted me, I also experienced sexual abuse. And so that's kind of in a nutshell. Elaine, can, can you describe your experience if you're comfortable? Sure. So I, I'm seven years older than Janine and our sister, Julie. Janine and Julie are twins. So from the time they were born, I was their mama, even though I was a little kid. So I, I took care of them and, um, loved them very much and tried to protect them. There was a time when I was eight years old and um, they were in their cribs in the morning crying. So they were, they were less than two, I think. Yeah, they were just little babies and they were in their cribs crying. And our father came in and he was just out of his mind with rage and he started beating them. Mm -hmm. And um, I just kind of I went ballistic and I went and grabbed him and grabbed his arms and I thought we're all going to die. The twins and I are going to die. He's going to kill us. 
because I'd seen him beat my brothers and put, you know, punch holes in the wall and get it. <laughs> he, he's used his gun to threaten us many times. And, um, but he, he, for some reason, uh, just kind of stared at me and shook me off and then he disappeared. And I took the babies out of the cribs and sat down on the floor with them and held them and rocked them to, to comfort them and try to just uh, stop shaking. So there were things like that that happened along the way. And then um, we were so uh, vulnerable to predators. I mean, any child can be preyed upon. You know, it doesn't matter what their family is like. Any child can be preyed upon. That's why we try to help our children have good boundaries and, you know, stranger danger, all these things we do to try to protect them. But for kids in a situation like ours, because of being so starved for adult nurture and a safe place to play and, you know, uh, things like that, we, all of us were preyed upon uh, by predators, and including myself. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of coming up. There were things like that. And all of those kids were forced to leave home when we were still children. And for my, uh, when I left home, it was a very bizarre thing where my parents uh, forced me to marry somebody <laughs> that I uh, didn't want to marry and who had uh, violent tendencies himself and had mental illness that uh, wasn't diagnosed at the time. And so it, it just it set us up for these trajectories in our lives uh, of uh, ongoing difficulty and susceptibility to authoritarian religion and things like that. We became uh, uh, Christians. Janine and I both became Christians in our teen years. And um, I'm so thankful, you know, I'm really thankful. Uh, but we were, we were drawn to these authoritarian kind of situations, patriarchal ones. So we have also a narrative of how the church harmed us and uh, how we had to heal and uh, develop our own voices and strength and begin to resist harmful theology and, and harmful forms of church. So uh, for, for Janine and for myself, our vocations are as healers. She's a healer in her therapeutic work and I'm a healer as a theologian and in my uh, innovative work in ministry. Um, but Janine also brings a lot of theological and spiritual wisdom and I bring more uh, therapeutic knowledge than your average person might have. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, let's go right there. Um, Lynn, you wrote, dad hated that I now went to church. He hated mm -hmm. everything about organized religion as he called it. The mantra in our house was whispered, don't, you'll make dad mad. I know it's hard to look back at a particular time in our lives with a fully formed understanding of where we were theologically, but, but to the best of your ability, what do you remember about how your relationship with your father affected your theological worldview? That's a fantastic question. Um, for me, this, and this is Elaine, um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I came to faith. Uh, and uh, I wrote about that story in the book. I won't go into details here, but I came to faith. It was it was vibrant and real for me. And I experienced wonderful, loving people at the church that I attended. And yet uh, the church was patriarchal. And so I got involved in sort of Wesleyan holiness churches for some years and uh, in those churches. And then I was in a Pentecostal environment for some number of years. Um, I was taught that you always submit to your husband. You, uh, the money belongs to the man. I was just taught these really awful patriarchal things. 
So, and then when you combine that with being married to somebody who's violent with mental illness and is suspicious and all these kinds of things, you're setting uh, up a situation for crazy, like a crazy, uh, really oppressive environment. So um, it took me quite a number of years to realize that God's not patriarchal, that God is not male, that, that God is beyond male and female, and you know, all, sort of all the theological things that have to happen in order to uh, not be, to not have your vision of God, your images of God determined by your father. Yeah. Janine, what about you? Um, well, I don't think that I, I was both afraid of men and I didn't have a very high opinion of men in general. And yet somehow I was able to hold Jesus in particular apart from that. And um, I was five or six when a neighbor took us to um, Sunday school and I learned that Jesus loved me. And I still remember really being very happy and about that and believing it. And I, um, but like Elaine is saying, you know, so on one hand, I love Jesus and I could hold Jesus and God apart from my dad. There was a whole other experience with pastors and the actual relationship I had with pastors and the men in the church. And then eventually um, my own, who am I as a woman in relation to them? And uh, absolutely zero voice or, you know, just mostly wanting to be good enough and also not wanting to be seen. And that's pretty, you know, tough tension. Yeah, when Papa quotes kind of in this section where you, you talk about kind of your the theology and what you're wrestling with, uh, you mm -hmm. wrote, I found Jesus and, mm -hmm. and more accurately, Jesus found me and not a moment too soon. Mm -hmm. um, Janine, you wrote, I grew up uh, accustomed to keeping family secrets and not airing dirty laundry. I, I was an expert at living with the addiction and abuse, but never talking about it. As a professional counselor, what do you think this type of family culture did to your understanding of trust and communication and transparency? Oh, wow. That's a great question. You know, in the 19, early 1990s, uh, the subject of being a, an adult child of alcoholic and the whole alcoholic family, um, there was just a lot of writing about it. And I don't know who gave me the book. Um, I believe it was by a woman, Claudia Black, maybe. Anyway, she um, articulated the dynamics of an alcoholic family. And that blew my mind um, because it was so precise about our family. And clearly that, um, that a book could be published with uh, that much detail meant it applied to many families. And so I began then to, I mean, it was a slow process. It was also at a time when I was a young mother and I really, really didn't want to mess up my children. And I was pretty certain I would. And because I didn't trust anyone 
And so my own family secrets that were biting my ass <laughs> and my inability to trust even trustworthy people um, drove me to therapy. And then I began to slowly and very um, intentionally bring out the secrets and the shame and into a lighted uh, room and examine them. So. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Christian Healthcare Ministries. You want to create a strong Christian family that will uphold one another through thick and thin. What if healthcare worked the same way? With Christian Healthcare Ministries, budget-friendly, compassionate care is within your reach. CHM empowers you to pursue excellence in healthcare without added stress or the need to cut corners. Whether you're looking for a comprehensive maternity program or the flexibility to choose your own providers, CHM has options to fit your family's specific needs. As the nation's first and longest-serving health cost-sharing ministry, you can rest assured knowing that you are making a difference in the lives of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Plus, you'll receive all the faith-based support of joining the larger CHM family. Encouragement and spiritual resources created for you and your little ones is just the beginning. Sounds different? It's by design. Join hundreds of thousands of members and discover the biblical solutions to your health care costs. To learn more, visit chministries.org. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. You know, thinking back, some families cover these kinds of things well, and other times there's signs that people recognize, you know, looking back from a, you know, a church experience, do you think people in the church knew? And, and if they knew, you know, what were they doing about it? And I guess that leads to thinking about do we have a culture in the church today in which people of faith recognize this kind of thing and, and what they should be doing about it? Yeah, um, my memory of, I mean, I know that the pastor and his wife from that church I attended when I first became a Christian, I know they knew our family was dysfunctional. I know they knew that. I'm sure I, I shared a little bit, but I was pretty tight-lipped about what our family was really like. Like I didn't talk to people at school about it or anything like that. And I... Um, I worked hard the way shame kind of controlled me. I felt like I had to be a super achiever student. So I like a straight A student, you know, and, and tried to just look like everything is okay. So it's, um, but I, I know the pastor and his wife knew the Sunday school teacher of the class I went to was so kind to me. I would just have to fight not to cry when I was in her class because I felt so loved and accepted and it was a safe space. But I don't remember ever hearing anything about, like now, if you go in a church restroom, in the women's restroom, inside the stall door, there's information on many churches that says, you know, uh, if you need a safe place or if someone's hurting you, or, you know, you can call this hotline. 
and you know just information to help people that are in danger nobody talked like that back then especially mm -hmm. not in church and i don't remember ever hearing that kind of thing like in high school or something so um I, I did have a memory of, I mean, I do have a memory of shortly after I got married, um, I had I'd been forced to leave home and go thousands of miles away and, and uh, be with this person. And I was, um, re I had enrolled in high school there and I was really having a hard time because I'd had to leave Janine and Julie behind and I was afraid for their lives. I felt like I had abandoned them. So I had terrible nightmares and uh, just kind of on the edge of a panic attack all the time. So I remember going to the pastor of the church, the, the pastor that married me and my ex-husband. And uh, I, I was, you know, here I am, I'm a 16-year-old kid, and I'm sitting in his office crying. I'm shaking uncontrollably. I'm telling him that my father had strangled me and that I wasn't safe and that I wasn't even, you know, s safe or okay in this marriage that I've been. <laughs> And uh, he just patted my hand and he said, oh, you'll be okay. You're, you're with a good Christian family now. And that, that was it. He had no knowledge of trauma or he wasn't hearing what I was saying. And so uh, I learned pretty quickly in those environments um, that I wasn't going to be taken very seriously or if I was listened to, I would be blamed for my ex-husband's everything. You know, it would be my mm -hmm. fault. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll get to towards the end, kind of thinking through for what this means for the church today. Um, Elaine, one of the most difficult chapters of the book was reflecting on how this abuse journey led into, you know, in many regards, I guess you use the language, an arranged marriage. Um, you wrote, my increasingly volatile marriage was like a, a terrible version of a nursery rhyme about the little girl with the little curl in the middle of the forehead when Alex wasn't raging contrast felt good but when he was it was horrid um I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper into kind of that journey from one abusive setting into the next abusive setting it's not unusual for people who've had uh, violence in their childhood to um, put up with or just kind of allow it to happen in an adult relationship and in uh, not only relationships with your intimate partner, but also with your church, with the place you work, you know, sort of with people, because your boundaries have been violated so much. Uh, the idea of, you know, having healthy boundaries is not something that you have a skill for, because that's been that's been messed up, right? So, um, yeah. So I I I write about this in the book. The the time that I the situation that happened that that sort of triggered the healing process for me. I'd been married for a number of years and I um, had to go to the dentist. We had a lot of dental problems, all of us kids, because we weren't provided medical care or the dental care that we needed when we were kids. So I go to the dentist and he's sort of looking horrified into my mouth. You know, he tells me all the things that I need to have done to my teeth or I will lose my teeth before I'm 30. And he explained how much it's going to cost and uh, and he and was talking like, uh, we can set up a, a no interest payment plan, you know, whatever you can manage in your budget. He's talking to me like I'm an adult that has a say in the family money, right? And I didn't because, as I said, everything belongs to Alex, right? He's in charge of money and any money I might earn and so on. So um, I went home from that appointment and I, I was looking in the mirror at my teeth and just trying to imagine how I would 
feel, first of all, um, how would it feel to not have pain? And then second, how would it, how would I feel if my, I had normal teeth, you know, like other people. And I just, something inside me rose up and said, okay, go get your teeth fixed. It's time to do this. And I, I drew a line in the sand. I called that dentist. I set the appointment. I said, okay, I'll do it. It's going to take me forever to pay you off, but I'm going to do it. And, uh, and I had to um, brace myself for the explosion that would happen later when I told Alex what I did. And, uh, but I got through it. And that was the beginning of realizing I could actually advocate for myself. I could begin to take back the life that had been robbed from me because I felt by that time, I felt uh, subhuman. I felt like I wasn't even a human being. I felt just so uh, subjugated and uh, treated like uh, less than a child even, you know, like I have to ask permission for every single thing I do and this sort of crazy patriarchy. Yeah. You both, um, at least what I can perceive in our time together are uh, pretty wonderful and extraordinary people. Um, you both had remarkable careers. Um, not, not everyone who experiences this level of abuse has the same life trajectory. What do you think made a difference in helping you overcome this hell? You know, I've thought about this a lot. And um, like, what, why are some people more resilient than others? What is, what is that? And I, um, I think I, Elaine, even though she was seven when I was born, I think she provided a degree of good enough mother that um, allowed me to have some very um, early developmental capacity to receive love. And, um, and then I think just, I think she did a great job and I give her a lot of credit for that. And, and then for the, to, the, to the degree our mother could love us. She wasn't a great mother, but she did love us. And she made a lot of poor decisions. Um, so along the way, um, because of my personality of wanting to please people and try to be good enough, that also generated some positive regard. And I had a few people who were pivotal when I uh, took the, the bus that came around our trailer uh, park in Anchorage and took us to took me to the Baptist church and I converted. I um, I met a woman who really made a difference in my life and she's still very important to me. And I think I think that that on some level, you know, it, the, of course it's, it was a work in progress, but it that belief that I was important to my friend Ruth and which began with Elaine I think set me up to receiving love throughout my life the other thing that I want to say is um you know what it what Elaine was talking about earlier we can if we don't do the work of healing of truth telling of turning the light on into our you know seek room of secrets uh we will naturally go toward repeating those patterns because it's how we know how to live. It's our homeostasis. And, um, and so the com combination of a few good people in my life who loved me well 
and really excellent therapy, I was able to show up to continued healing and I think be able to give it back. Elaine, what about you? Yeah, there were some people along the way. Um, there was my third grade teacher, Mrs. Lyons, who she loved me and she that was an especially traumatic year. That was when I was eight years old and so many awful things happened that year. But um, I, I loved her class. I loved going to school. And I, one, one day she asked me to stay after, uh, stay in during recess. And I was really nervous because she felt like the, like the safe adult in my life that was gonna be there for me. And I was afraid I was in trouble. But I went up to her desk and she opens a drawer and pulls out a tube of Avon skin cream she she's, she's, she takes my little arm, you know, my little forearm in her in her hand, and she puts a little strip of this cream on my forearm, just very appropriate touch. She starts to gently rub it into my skin, and she says, I noticed you have dry skin, and I thought you might like this. You might like to have this cream. It's just very simple. And this fragrance of the cream came up into my nostrils, and I just felt transfixed by this uh, touch, uh, the smell her kind eyes. And so I'm staring at her with my mouth hanging open. <laughs> she says, <laughs> she says, um, you, you can go out and play now. <laughs> she puts the lid back on the cream and she gives it, she said, you can go put this in your desk, go out and play now. And so I, I went out and just kind of sniffed my arm through recess. But there was some, like I smelled like her now. So there was this way of uh, the mirroring and the love that came from her toward me that so helped me to be resilient through like one of the worst years of my childhood. And then I think of people in my adult life, there was a pastor named Betty Jevons. I've written about her in some of my books. She mentored me when I was in my early thirties and was really instrumental in my um, being able to hear a call into the ministries that I've done for many years now. And she also, uh, she was unlike anybody I've ever known. She was a true Christian mystic and she just helped me because she, she treated me with, with respect. She saw my heart, she loved me. She gave me opportunities over and over just to be with her and shadow her while she was doing her work, you know, her pastoral work and her retreat work. And um, so her influence was incredibly important. And then finally, I would say, uh, Janine has been incredibly important to my healing because when she was going through therapy, I was in, I was in seminary. We were just like going through these things at the same time. And we would call, uh, talk on the phone and we would write each other letters and process things together. And she, she's just always been there for me. She's um, really been amazing. So I, I, we feel like that movie, um, Shawshank's Redemption, like we crawled through this sewer together <laughs> to come mm -hmm. out into freedom. Yeah. You know, reflecting on kind of, the purpose behind not only sharing the story, but um, as you write, uh, we want you, our readers, to know that what it means to love the hell out of yourself after experiencing years of devastating trauma that put the hell into you in the first place. Um, Janine, from a, a counseling perspective, what does a healthy process of loving the hell out of yourself, out of a devastating trauma of this kind, look like? Well, it's a journey. And um, I, think, I think the first part is courageously um, finding a therapist, finding someone trustworthy, uh, um, 
that you can talk to that will help you. And I, uh, I think about what it is to open our clenched fist to the um, internal narratives that we hold on to from our childhood, from our child perspective, where we assigned meaning to the events of uh, trauma that happened early on and to begin to release that uh, tight, tightly held belief very gently and compassionately expanding that story. Um, I think it means moving from things that are violent, whether it's our own self and how we um, are to ourselves, inside ourselves, what we say, who we choose to be with, and moving to a more vulnerable, compassionate place, which is actually far more protective. Um, and, you know, again, I think healing is not linear. It's, uh, it's very circular, thank God, <laughs> that we can move around and around. And in the seasons of our life, we're gonna, you know, I'm 61 and the healing that I do now is, is at a whole different, deeper level, but it's also at a new level. I've never been 61 before, and I've never lived into this life of what we would call being a senior or an elder. And, and I still want to practice the releasing of old beliefs to uh, use Christian terms to the resurrection of new life, new, new birth. Elaine, from a, a theological perspective, what is a healthy process of loving the hell out of yourself out of devastating trauma like this look like? I think it really, at its core, it's a contemplative process. The more we develop capacity to be in the presence of God who is love, a God whose meaning is love, a God who adores us, a God who's always for us and can can just kind of work through all sorts of things on our behalf. That changes how we talk to ourselves, how we uh, imagine ourselves. It changes the chatter that goes on in our heads, right? So uh, learning contemplative prayer, um, becoming familiar with the wisdom of the saints and the mystics, the ones who really understood that God's meaning is love, like Julian of Norwich. This is so, so helpful. Um, mindfulness practices that are linked to this theology of God's meaning is love. These are so helpful. And um, even uh, I think of some of the language in the epistles about we're a new creation, that the old is past and the new has come. And we're being made new in the image of Christ and we're being renewed in, in our minds and in our hearts. There's plenty there in scripture as well that can help us heal if it's interpreted rightly. <laughs> so. Mm -hmm. uh, so that that's a piece of it too and then finally um, being in a community uh, that's pretty healthy makes all the difference in the world because it takes it takes relationships to heal this kind of trauma like trusting healthy appropriate relationships where people become sort of brothers to you and fathers and mothers and sisters and uncles and cousins you know and um, that all that all helps to heal this sense of being rootless and being a motherless child and those sort of feelings and narratives that we get when we when we're uh, traumatized 
how do you imagine this being um, a resource for churches, um, Janine? Well, I think uh, I think it's um, could be a resource in churches because it's our uh, trauma that we were. Elaine and I were in, um, a, you know, a pretty violent home, but it led us to churches that, um, not the church itself, the institution itself, well, perhaps, but individuals within the church preyed upon us. And um, I think as a resource, it's just further awareness of the need for safety in churches, but also I'm hoping and I believe it, it tells the story that we do not need to be defined by the things that happen to us, um, that we get to, uh, through time, through prayer, through experience, find out that we're really lovable and that we are uh, made in the image of God and that all are. Um, yeah, I think that it's a resource of hope. I also think it's a resource in the area of forgiveness and because that's a major theme in our book, mm -hmm. but it's a forgiveness that's born out of truth telling and um, not, it is not an easy forgiveness. It's not a forgiveness based in some sort of um, whitewashing or, or a quick, uh, forgive and forget kind of reference it's it's really forgiveness um be, as a as a gift of releasing what is bound us and then through uh, a lifetime of prayer and a lifetime of honest truth telling of letting go of the um the meaning that we assigned to the injuries given to us so that we can, um, I talk about it in the book um, that our mother, I believe when she died, she was not bound. She had worked through both forgiving herself and others. And we also were able to uh, not, we were, to, we were able to let go of those things that bound her as well. And I hope that that's, uh, you know, a resource to others in the church and otherwise. Mm -hmm. Elaine, from, you know, kind of a real practical standpoint, what, what are some things congregational leaders can do to prepare people to see signs of abuse and, and what should the proper response be? Uh, people, people need to take, when they're in seminary, they need to take classes on trauma, on domestic violence, sexual abuse, and just trauma in general so that they uh, understand, uh, for example, if someone comes into your office and says, uh, I've, I've been beat up or I'm experiencing violence in my home, and, they, and then they have trouble telling you exactly what happened uh, in the past before we became more trauma-informed, people would think, oh, she's, she's making it up or he's making it up or it's not that bad or whatever. They didn't understand how the experience of trauma fragments our ability to even remember exactly what happened and repeat it in a coherent narrative because it, uh, neurologically uh, some things are going on when you're experiencing trauma just so that you can survive. So there, uh, uh, I think every single person who's going to be a leader in the church, whether it's a lay person or a pastor, 
needs to read Bessel van der Kolk, The Body Keeps the Score, and that will give a great overview of how we hold trauma in our bodies and how we can release the trauma from our bodies and how holistic it is. So that's an excellent book by a leader in somatic uh, healing from trauma. Then there's also the, uh, a therapeutic, I'm sorry, a theological work that needs to be done around patriarchy and you know, the isms and phobias that are still so strong in the church uh, are all traumatizing. They're all violent. And so we, we have to keep doing our work on those issues. And then finally, um, it's really good if a, a church, if the pastors on staff at a church can become familiar with the resources in their own community. So um, a shelter for uh, people who are being battered, you know, who are the therapists that have special training in EMDR and, and other sort of trauma uh, therapeutic uh, practices so that when a person comes into the office and begins to disclose uh, what they're experiencing or, or they're talking about what happened when they were a kid and you're the first person they ever told, you, you can um, have some resources at hand to help them. Uh, probably the most important first thing to remember when you're talking with someone and they begin to disclose that they've experienced trauma, violence of some kind, is to believe them, uh, to just to believe them and to welcome their story and to listen deeply and with kindness in your heart and, um, and to say, I, I hear you. I'm so sorry that happened to you. I mean, you begin with those kind of words. Janine might want to say a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, one of my concerns about church is that there can be a lot of double speak. And um, I would encourage pastors to really do their own healing and become very clear on what are what what are indications of good boundaries healthy boundaries and unhealthy boundaries because because the church and and really everywhere we're just all we all have injury and we all have need and i think that uh pastors that are genuine and walk their talk and stay current um, and are not afraid of secular training to support their theology. Um, it, it is extremely important for a healthy community. A lot of things can be done and are done in re using religious language or even yoga language or <laughs> any kind of uh, what we might consider really um, stereotyping for healthy, but um, it, what is in actual practice can be abusive. And so really looking not just at what's presented, but what is what is actually happening, uh, it should be congruent. So if it's healthy language, it should be healthy behavior. And yeah, that's what I, I think that's one of my bigger concerns within church communities is the practice of really healthy boundaries with great generosity and grace, but absolute truth, truth telling. Our guests are Elaine Heath and Janine Heath McGlynn. The book is Loving the Hell Out of Yourself. You can stay connected with Jean by checking out her work at heathmcglynn.com and Elaine at elaineheath.com. 
Janine and Elaine, it's been a joy talking with you. Thank you for sharing your story as a resource to help people experiencing violence, neglect, and abandonment know that they can survive, find resilience, and thrive. Thank you so Thank much. You. Before we wrap up, we need to tell you about one more of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Are you looking for a Bible study resource for your church? Responding to an invitation from the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of Virginia, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has produced Bible study resources that is available for free of charge. The study, title, Faithful Curiosity, Five-Week Study of Luke and Acts, deals with three passages from Luke and two passages from Acts. It offers Bible study methods and provides two interpretive essays for each passage. The writers are BSK faculty, staff, students, and alumni. Download this resource for free today at bsk.edu backslash faithful. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.